Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. In October 1569, a captain of a French ship in the Bay of Fundy, between modern New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, was summoned on deck. Alongside was a canoe, and in it were three Englishmen, David Ingram, Richard Brown, and Richard Twide. They claimed to be the survivors of a group of 100 men marooned on the Gulf Coast of Mexico by an English slave trading expedition. From that point, about 200 miles south of the mouth of the Rio Grande, the three of them had walked north for 3,600 miles, making the journey in about a year. In August 1582, David Ingram was interviewed and his answers recorded by none other than Sir Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth I's Secretary of State and Chief of Intelligence. Shortly after the publication of his testimony and ever after, Ingram has been regarded as one of the great liars of his era. He described such impossibilities as large cities, kings carried about in crystal chairs, American natives working with and using iron, and the appearance of penguins and elephants along the eastern seaboard of North America. Add to that the claim of his extraordinary overland journey, and little wonder that Samuel Purchase in 6025 observed of his account that the reward of lying is not to be believed in truths. But Dean Snow, who once, like most people, believed that Ingram was at the very best given to tall tales, has changed his mind about Ingram's journey. In his new book, The Extraordinary Journey of David Ingram, Snow reconsiders the evidence and recreates the context of Ingram and his journey. Dean Snow is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Penn State, a past president of the Society for American Archaeology. He is particularly known for his work on archaeology of Native North America, with a long-standing focus on the Haudenosaunee, or Iroquois people. Dean Snow, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. So, uh... This is um, one of the best sea ex- adventure stories ever told, uh, and uh, I uh, can't can hardly contain my enthusiasm for it. Uh, it was such it was like being a kid to read the story, and I'm, I must have been tremendously enjoyable to write. It was, but it was it was a bit difficult uh, for me because um, I I've done most of my writing as technical. Uh, reports in in archaeology and ethnohistory, and um, the, the the readers of this book are not interested in how I got to those conclusions. They just want to know what the conclusions were. So uh, it went through a lot of rewrites. I had a lot of help, but it, it came out well. I think in the end, because I had a lot of I had a, an excellent editor to begin with. Well, let's start with the 1582 interview, which um, I would think is a tremendous uh, scene and spectacle. Could you set the sort of who was present and who they were? Um, and we'll reserve some other things for the afterwards, but just to set that scene of who is confronting David Ingram and who's David Ingram as far as we know at that moment. Well, first and foremost was was Francis Walsingham, which you've already characterized as the, the Queen's spy master uh, and her secretary of state. And he had been assigned to this task uh, by her in discussion. And uh, with him uh, were a a number of gentlemen. He specifies that, but he does not tell us the names of of the other gentlemen except 
one, and that's George Peckham, who has a particular interest uh, that we can come back to later. Uh, but others that were probably present uh, would have been, at least for part of the time, uh, Humphrey Gilbert. Uh, f- for the whole period uh, during which this interrogation took place, Gilbert's uh, employee, John Walker, was present, certainly. We know that from uh, the documents. Gilbert was uh, the half-brother of Walter Raleigh, and Raleigh might also have been present for at least part of it. Uh Another gentleman who had been part of the uh, the voyage, Miles Phillips, had recently escaped from the Spanish and had come back to London, and he immediately found David Ingram, and the two of them spent a lot of time together. He was probably present, but we don't know that for sure. And then finally, Richard Hacklute, uh, the historian, who was an old friend of Walsingham's, had worked with him in Paris, uh, and was busy compiling a history, a monumental history, of um, British exploration uh, at the time that uh, this, uh, this interrogation took place. And he would publish on this uh, a few years later. Uh, either Hacklude himself or his agent were there. So this is quite the a room filled with people that even if you have a half knowledge of like the bear of some of the personalities of the Elizabethan era, uh, half of them seem to be in that room. I mean, we're missing maybe maybe we're missing John D. and you know this a Cecil or two, but everyone else is like there. Philip Sidney's right. dead by that time, but uh, yes. it's amazing how many people are there or potentially were there, um, and why that is would be the case. I think we'll get to later. Uh, Richard Ingram, on the other hand, is not a grandee. Uh, he's not an eminence of the court. He's not an eminence of the Elizabethan state. Who is he, as best as we can tell, when the story begins at that moment? Well, David Ingram was just a guy, David Ingram, uh, an ordinary man who um, had managed to walk through the interior of North America, uh, not far the interior, but in the interior. And previous uh, visitors to the continent from England had only touched the coast. These were all people who were interested in colonization, finally. The Elizabethans finally got around to competing directly with the French and the Spanish in the colonization of North America, and they really needed to know uh, what they were getting into. And Ingram, as it turns out, was the only Englishman available who had been there. Uh, And the two men that had been with him were both dead by this time. Uh, So Ingram was the guy, and he was known uh, to be the guy uh, in in, uh, even in these elevated circles uh, of British government. And so they brought him in for an interrogation. And Walsingham had his list of topics that he wanted to interrogate him about. Uh, that has survived. And, um, uh, and they, uh, they got into a discussion that apparently went on for days. Uh, and it's, it's clear from just reading the records that the people who were doing the court recording uh, got a little bit tired over time, and um, and things became confused uh, because people started jumping in with questions that were not recorded. Uh, all we have are Ingram's more or less 100 statements uh, in response to various questions that were posed to him. So one of the great things about this book um, for the historian is... Not only is it a fantastic adventure story, but beneath it all, 
is one of the the best ever case studies of the difficulties of evidence and the yes. dif- difficulties of dealing with the history of histories. So we're going to take a we're going to take a a real dive into that because one of the problems, then the reasons why, if you'd asked me before I read this book, if I knew, if I remembered who David Ingram was, I would say, oh yeah, he was a kind of a fabulist uh, who told a bunch of mixed up stories about supposedly walking I through Eastern North America. I had no idea the distance that he actually was supposedly had gone. Um, if I look up professor Wikipedia, I can, he'll tell me much the same thing. So, one of the reasons for this idea of him, you argue, is that there are a variety of different dot. There are three different documents come out of that interrogation, and therein right. lies our confusion. Yes, uh, but one of them had the clue, uh, okay. and that was the big realization that I had early on in this process. Um, I had been corresponding back in the 70s with uh, David Beers Quinn, who was the dean of uh, uh, this area of historical oh, he, research at the he time. Was, he was he the master of all the texts. He knew, he, it, he, knew he knew everything about the English adventure in Ireland and the Roanoke exactly. Colony, every, all these people. They were like friends to him. Yeah. He, uh, he and I had some correspondence because he needed to know something about uh, um, Native Americans, and he thought that I might be able to supply that information. So we went back and forth a few times. Um, and uh, at about that time, he had published uh, one a transcript of one of those three sources. And I think he must have seen something there because uh, in uh, 1979, he did a very brief bio on David Ingram, and he said, you know, this guy's a liar, but there might be something there. So Quinn saw something, but he didn't quite put his finger on it. And um, uh, and then he, he died shortly after. Uh, but he said, you know, somebody with time on his hands might want to look into this uh, if they get a chance. And so that turned out to be me. But you, at the time, would have thought, there's nothing in it at all. At the time, uh, I uh, vilified uh, Ingram twice in two different chapters of the uh, volume 15 of the Handbook of North American Indians. Uh, you know, I, I just followed the crowd. Uh, I, I listened to my betters and but, uh, but, vilified Ingram. But with your knowledge, looking at Ingram, what was extraordinary? I mean, what was out of the ordinary, not just out of the ordinary, but impossible when looking at Ingram's account? I, I, I've already alluded to that. A little bit in the introduction, but you you give me some specifics. Well, the uh, one of the documents, uh, the most important one, is uh, uh, a, re- uh, a record of the interrogation um, that um, uh, is now referred to as one of the uh, state papers, domestic papers in the archives at, in England, and that's the key one because. Uh, you can break it into entries. Uh, it, 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 it breaks down usually by paragraph uh, into 70 or 80 uh, separate statements that were picked up from uh, the interrogation. And you can reconstru- you can assume that they were done at least at first in sort of the order in which he stated these things. And it turns out that all 18 of the first entries, uh, refer to Africa. 
And these are very, very specific statements that can only refer to his time in Africa. This was a slaving expedition, and these folks spent a lot of time gathering people in Africa to put into the holds of their ships to cart them off to the Caribbean. Um, Ingram uh, describes a lot of this, and it, the statements uh, contain information that can only refer to Africa. We know that now, but they couldn't have known that in 1852 because they didn't know enough about the ethnography of Africa or America. So why does it, but when Richard Hacklett published this, yeah. the, the, does the order change? Because this is, it's, it's Hacklett's publication that people regard as the testimony of Ingram's expedition. Does That's... Yes, that that's because it's easy to read. Uh, <laughs> it was sent to a printer, and you can read it. The manuscripts are all written in secretary hand, which is deliberately obscure and difficult to read. Uh, that's how secretaries uh, guaranteed their employment. Uh, only they could read this stuff easily. Uh, and uh, you, you only realize uh, once you penetrate the that second... Uh, document that all 18 of the first entries are sort of a response to David thinking he was there to tell his story. And he starts at the beginning. So everything relates to his stuff in Africa. Hacklute then later was so confused by everything that he was reading in that document that he repackaged it by topic. So he talks about animals in one section, and then he talks about trees and other resources, because these are the uh, uh, categories that Walsingham tried to impose on uh, the discussion at the very beginning. So this is this is so we all have, just have a problem of textual um, transmission. We have a problem of oral history. Uh, Walsingham has a agenda. It, he, as you say, it's printed. He tells him yeah. what he's going to ask, and he's asking these questions, and Ingram is responding not with answers to those questions, which are oddly, they're oddly non-narrative. He wants to he wants to come up with an assessment of certain topics, but Ingram instead is telling a narrative of his journey from leaving England through Africa over to the Caribbean, right. and then through his marooning, and then his walk. So, so we've Ingram, got two different, we've got two different, two different yeah. tales are being told or at one tale is being asked of or inquired after, and the other one is being told and they're crossing past each other. That's right. And that, uh, the shift came after those first 18 entries because he, he, you know, he started telling his narrative in chronological order and then they began interrupting him with questions and pulling him back to the categories that Walsingham was interested in. Uh, Hacklute couldn't make sense of all of that afterwards. And so he simply repackaged it and edited everything uh, so that it was done in a topical order, according to uh, more or less what Walsingham had been looking for. And then he led the whole thing with the statement that this referred only to Ingram's long walk in North America. So then we have... Horns made from we have el we have the elephants, the crystal chair, the ironwork, all these things that Africans yeah. were doing, but not Native Americans. Actually, the the crystal chair example comes out of um, uh, what was going on in North America at the time. 
quartz crystals were being mined in the Mohawk Valley of upstate New York, and they were being traded all over the place. And they had enormous magical qualities in the eyes of the uh, indigenous people. And so they would decorate the posts inside their houses with these uh, uh, crystals. And that got repackaged in people's thinking during the interrogation as crystal pillars, Mm -hmm. which we're just talking about wooden posts that people had put a few crystals on. Uh, and we know they did that archaeologically. Uh, I found them myself in archaeological sites in the Mohawk Valley. Huh. Um, but, uh, it takes, you know, but it takes your knowledge to work that out. Richard Hacklett couldn't exactly uh, begin to imagine what, what he was yeah. talking about. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, that was the problem. so we've got these. So hence the, you've, you've had to then reconstruct the, the, the text. Um, the and this takes us in a very different direction. Um, let's begin with the journey. Um, I, actually, I should ask you: At what point did you realize that there was more to Ingram than you had thought? Was that when you finally penetrated the secretarial hand? When you realized the the variance between the Hacklett's publication and what was actually written down in the manuscripts? It was, yeah, it was after I realized that the third manuscript was probably the one uh, that uh, Hacklut actually gave to his printer because it corresponds to the printed version very closely. Um, And you can then see how he uh, had to rearrange, from his point of view, uh, everything to make sense of it. but the big mistake that he made was uh, telling the reader at the very beginning of that published version that this refers, all these uh, points refer only to the long walk in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, he heard what he wanted to hear or read what he wanted to read. So, so there was a further, there's a, there's, so there was also further, were there further sort of corruptions introduced by the printer uh, when the printer... Uh, there, there might have been. I, I wouldn't say that. I think the printer uh, followed what Hacklut did pretty closely. Uh, one of the things that I noticed in the manuscript, for however, was uh, um, much of uh, the third manuscript, which is often referred to as a Tanner manuscript, um, is in secretary hand. But at the time, uh, printers weren't putting in subheadings uh, like we do. Uh, they were putting in marginal uh, entries uh, that were basically headings for the uh, corresponding paragraphs. Uh, and I noticed that the uh, marginal uh, notes that became headings uh, in the Tanner manuscript are all in italic hand. In other words, uh, the, the kind of writing that was beginning to replace secretary hand uh, is what they were using for those. So those were added uh, at the very end, uh, I don't know who added them, but uh, they were they were stuck in there to sort of uh, organize it for the reader, uh, and that might have been Hacklut's secretary. I don't know who it was, uh, but um, uh, you know, there's an interesting uh, feature there that 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 gets preserved in the printed version, and who knows, it might have been feedback from the printer too. That's fascinating. Oh, at least for some of us. Um, so let's let's get with the with, with the narrative itself. Um, right. Ingram is along on the third, I believe, the third of John Hawkins' uh, slave capturing trading expeditions, uh, which is he is doing what I think 
people imagined slave traders were doing in the 18th and 19th century. But he's literally going and capturing Africans off the coast of Africa and then taking them across the Atlantic. So That's Hawkins, right. Hawkins is not a savory person, but an extremely important one. So we should talk a little bit about him first because he's very important to the story. He uh, actually sent out another vo uh, voyage in between the second and third uh, that he did where he was not the uh, captain. He was not on the voyage himself. He sent one of his people out to do it. And that was the least successful. Mm -hmm. But the, the, uh, the three voyages uh, otherwise were increasingly lucrative for him. Uh, Elizabeth had been opposed when she was a young woman to the idea of slavery. But by the time we get to uh, the, eight, the 1560s, um, she has realized that she can make a lot of money uh, using Hawkins in this way. So she supplies him with one of her ships as his flagship on this third voyage, uh, Jesus of Lubeck, and um, uh, supplies him with other uh, kinds of support, financial, and there were a number of gentlemen along who were there as investors who were and, and went along in order to make sure their investments were well used. Um, and uh, it was a big party of, uh, uh, of individuals that got on the half dozen boats and sailed uh, from Plymouth, ultimately. And um, uh, there were 400 uh, Englishmen aboard those ships. Uh, they went off to Africa they got uh, to Sierra Leone, uh, what is now Sierra Leone, and uh, found themselves witnesses to a war that was going on, and they quickly allied themselves with one side in that war, getting the promise that the losers would all be turned over to the Englishmen uh, to put in their ships and haul off to America. That was how they acquired the slaves. Hawkins has found, as it were, a chink in the armor of the Spanish Empire. The Spanish in, in are desperate for labor, for unfree labor. Uh, right. It's difficult. Uh, trading for various Spanish reasons is very difficult within the Spanish Empire. And so here he is. He can go to out-of-the-way corners of the empire. It's key that they're on the Spanish main, which is a little bit. It's a little bit flea-bitten by this time. It's a little bit out of the way. And he's going to go there. He'll sell slaves along the Spanish main, along the northern coast of South America, and he'll make a ton of money. And the local governors and mayors will be pleased with it because, thank God, someone's come to trade with him, um, which is kind of unheard of. That's right. It was all illegal from the point of view of Philip, king, uh, the king of Spain, uh, and he had threatened these people with all kinds of dire consequences if they participated in it. But uh, by hook or by crook, and there was a lot of crook involved in Hawkins and the way he did business, uh, he would either force or cajole or uh, tempt uh, these colonists and buying at gunpoint was a, a favorite retail tactic of John Hawkins. Exactly. Yeah. And then they would cook up some sort of uh, story uh, to explain how this uh, had happened. Um, but these guys had gotten into trouble in the past because they had uh, allowed themselves to be uh, used by Hawkins on his two previous voyages. So some of them were very, very reluctant. And there was a lot of resistance initially. And there was fighting. And a lot of people got killed in the process of what was basically a, a trading expedition. 
yeah it's a it's a it's a hell of a trading expedition um it's very much it is so much like the east india company in its early days um uh, but maybe even with more gunfire um th- let's talk about ingram uh, yeah. one of the pleasures of this book is seeing what Ingram sees and having you sort of lean over our shoulder and explain it to us. And by doing that, we realize that Ingram is kind of a, he's a delightful observer. He's, he's, he's much more curious than you, as a, the, but I should say that the, you provide a sort of an appendix, which is a corrected version of Ingram's testimony, which I go back, we recommend that people go back and forth between your text and Ingram's testimony. Um, but thanks to your, uh, thanks to you, we're able to see, realize that he's a very curious person. He's interested in what he sees. And he sees a lot of different things. Yeah. The, the guy was intellectually, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's hard to use that word at the same time as illiterate, but there it is. Uh, he was a smart guy and a natural historian uh, a natural, natural historian. Uh, he um, uh, he had really terrific observations about all kinds of uh, uh, plant life, uh, animal life, and um, uh, the geology, the topography, uh, the, the agricultural potential of the lands that he passed through. It's remarkable to uh, hear this from uh, a guy with no formal education at all that uh, can be detected. Um, and unfortunately, since he was illiterate, he couldn't write it down himself, which would have saved us from having to rescue his reputation 400 years later. But um, uh, there it is. If you if you unpack all this stuff, you discover a really interesting guy who talks about manatees. Yeah. Um, wait, you know, wait, wait on that. Wait on that. Wait on that. Because right. uh, um, that was that's for for later readers. That that was the most incredible part of his story. Um, the uh, but he he's interested like what leopards climbing trees after people. I mean, he's yeah. interested in the the use of drums by Africans, what they make their horns out of. He sees all these different things. Um, how they how did they um, uh, catch water buffalo? Yeah. Uh, how did they, how did they you know I'm mean, using hand tools. How do they take down an elephant? Um, you know he observed all this and he observed their culture up close and their uh, uh, their attitudes about adultery and uh, you know their behaviors uh, in in social contexts. How they treated their royalty. It's it's all you know. The, the guy's a natural eth- ethnographer. Uh, in addition to being really interested in. Uh, the natural world. So they take aboard hundreds, a thousand uh, enslaved people, uh, the captives. There's, there's hundreds. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, they sold most of them in the Caribbean before they ran into trouble. So they in the Caribbean and they make the, a, a plot along the Northern coast of, of South America. And right. um, what does he see there? That particularly tickles he, your. He observes the pearl industry, for example. Uh, there are natural pearls in uh, off the coast of South America, and the Spanish were uh, taking advantage of that, harvesting a lot of pearls. Um, and uh, he, he also observed, um, uh, you know, how these little uh, colonies were supporting themselves, um, and 
agriculturally, uh, they were all already fairly well along in the sort of uh, global trade of plants and, and animals. Uh, you know, the banana had already spread to the new world by this time. Um, and But this was the first time that this man had ever eaten a banana, and he was very excited about bananas. Um, and he observed, you know, a number of other things down there. I, I, he, um, uh, he, they, they caught and stuffed either an, a crocodile or an alligator because uh, they, they wanted to take that home. He saw rattlesnakes. Now, that's an American thing. Um, uh, he also saw harpy eagles are hard to miss. They're enormous animals. And of course, when the people back in England heard his story about harpy eagles, they thought, oh, that's just another lie. There can't be anything that big. But that, that there was. That carries away monkeys to eat yes. them. You know, I mean, yeah. What are you going to, what are you going to have us believe? So they, um, they attempt to uh, attack Cartagena to force them to trade. That's unsuccessful. Right. We should mention that one of the commanders of one of these uh, seven ships is none other than a young Francis Drake. Uh, who, exactly. When he left Cartagena, must have said, "I'll be back." Um, and this is this is Francis Drake's sort of first. He's apprentice captain, captaincy kind of in many ways. Right. He's a he's a cousin of Hawkins. So yeah. he has the advantage of family connection. They're all related in one way. Yeah. <laughs> Raleigh and Gil, they're all, you know, in Cavendish and uh, they're all, Frobisher is the only person that's from Yorkshire, I think, that you talk about. Um, <laughs> the uh, They make their way north, they head north, and they get caught in a hurricane um, off in the, I guess, the passage between uh, Yucatan and Cuba, the worst place, maybe the worst that's place. That's right, caught, yes. Yeah. They get caught there by a hurricane, and we know I'm I'm in Florida at this moment. Uh, we escape from Pennsylvania in the winter time, uh, and uh, so we know about hurricanes. And this th- this was a a pretty big one, and it uh, it broke the uh, the little fleet up. One ship disappeared. They thought they had lost it. It ended up back in England before anybody else got back. Uh, but the rest of them had to head for shelter, and so they discovered that there was a place at what is now Veracruz, Mexico, where they could find temporary shelter and, uh, and refit the ship so they could sail home. They're running before the storm. They end That's up right. in Veracruz, of all places, where Cortez had landed, um, right. which was now the, the chief seaport, the, the Caribbean seaport for Mexico. And a series, from the English perspective, from certainly from David Ingram's perspective, this begins a series of unfortunate events. Um, <laughs> far from up until now, they've skated through, as I said, the edges, the fle- the moth-eaten, flea-bitten edges of the Spanish Empire. Now, all of a sudden, they're really in its heart. I mean, they're at its mouth. So, what happens? Well, this is the place where all the gold and silver that is stolen from the uh, people up in the highlands of central Mexico gets uh, hauled down uh, to the port. And um, uh, and it's stored there waiting for the annual treasure fleet to come. Well, unfortunately for Hawkins and all the Englishmen on those ships, uh, they took over the port uh, and the, the Mexicans weren't able to do much about it initially. They take over the port and then only a matter of hours, a couple of days later, that huge Spanish treasure sh- fleet shows up from Seville. 
And uh, there's with a, with a, a new standoff vice, for a while. Hmm? With a new viceroy on board. With a new viceroy on board and a lot of soldiers and so heavily no can, gunned galleons. No one can pretend that, the, no one can say, gee, you know, it's the viceroy. No one can say, yeah, we never saw them. You know, they're, <laughs> here they are. And they've actually literally seized the port of Veracruz in order to make their repairs. That's and, what they had done. Okay. And uh, this so, is a bad situation. I think anyone can agree. And no surprise, after a few days, it turned into a huge battle. And uh, most of the English ships were sunk, including Queen Elizabeth's flagship. Uh, the, a slightly smaller uh, ship, the Minion, managed to uh, escape. Uh, Francis Drake and his very small ship uh, was the first to get out. Um, and he sailed directly for home, thinking all was lost. Uh, but Hawkins managed to then escape a little later, uh, and uh, half of the 400 men that had not been killed or captured in the fighting got onto that one ship, the Minion, and they uh, staggered out of port with no supplies and just barely enough rigging to uh, sail back to England, and 200 men uh, that couldn't be supported for a, a voyage of that length. And there's probably a uh, hundred men would be too much for the size of this of this ship. It's I mean a hundred men turned out to be almost too much. Right. Uh, they they did make it back, but there were a lot of people who died on the voyage. Uh, but when Hawkins realized that uh, they simply couldn't make it back with that many aboard, he gave them a choice. He said, "Okay, the following people have to stay with me because I need them for the voyage." But everybody else has a choice. You want to stay with me and take your chances, or do you want to go ashore and take your chances? And uh, so it's it's a dilemma, of course. And uh, game theorists love this because they would predict exactly what happened, which is half the men went ashore and the other half stayed aboard. Uh, but there was a lot of negotiation that went on in that process. So this is somewhere on the coast of Mexico near Tampico, modern Tampico. Um, near Tampico, yes. Uh, halfway between Veracruz and the Rio Grande, um, more, right. just almost precisely, I believe, looking at the map. Yep. And 100 men go on shore. Um, and now they have to take their choice uh, between what? I mean, do they? Do we have any idea of... Because uh, there, there are actually a number of survivors of this, of the, of that hundred to give testimony, yes. to, to correlate with Ingram's testimony. So what, what, what do people decide to do at that moment? Well, some of them, Ingram principally and his two buddies think we can hike North. And if we can get around the North side of the Gulf, we can get to a Spanish or excuse me, a French outpost that uh, had been visited by the second uh, Hawkins voyage. Uh, and they knew that if they could get there, they might be able to find a way home. Uh, at least they would have friendly people to talk to. This is the um, French. This is a French fort settlement, and right on top of modern-day Jacksonville is built on top of it. And it's yeah, a, that's a, right. a refuge for key point here for French Protestants for Huguenots. Uh, they so were. This is yes, part of they the, were Huguenots. This is part of the Protestant sailors in the Atlantic. They must all know about this place. And they that must be the closest Protestant place that's available. So they, the idea is to walk there. And a few of these guys knew about it. Um, 
what happened is that it, it all played out in a very complex way because they were in, immediately attacked by the hunter-gatherers that lived in the uh, interior of Mexico in that area, and it was not a, a, a nice welcome. Uh, quite a few of them, majority of them, gradually began to move towards the idea of turning themselves in and taking their chances in Mexico City. And all but 26, I think, it was a couple dozen, uh, decided to do that. And uh, their stories uh, are sort of an aside to Ingram's story. Um, and uh, one of them, uh, Miles Phillips, manages to escape and comes back to England about the same time uh, that uh, Ingram was doing his interrogation. But the, many of the others died. Let's say parenthetically that they, some of them do rather well. They marry, etc. And then three years later, the Inquisition shows up and says, yeah, right. where, where did these Lutherans come from? Uh, and exactly. That, and that begins the bad, that becomes an unfortunate period in their stories. Um, and that's why Miles Phillips ends up uh, on a galley uh, in penal right. punishment and from which he eventually escapes. It's like a Michael, it's like an Errol Flynn movie, really. Um, yeah. uh, so 26 men head north through the Chichimec uh, regions heading for this French fort in northern Florida. That alone seems a, a small it's a very small read on which to support your hopes. Um, what do they have with them? Uh, do we? Do they have? Do they have guns, swords, bows and arrows. What do they have in order to make do? They had a sword, um, <laughs> and they. But they also had bolts of cloth, huh. expensive Rouen uh, cloth that, uh, Hawkins had brought along, uh, for trade purposes. It gave each of the men a bolt of this stuff to use as trade. And it, and, uh, it would have been, uh, highly prized. Um, now the Chichimex of uh, the interior of that part of Mexico would have thought, well, okay, steal it. Uh, what do we owe these guys? Um, so they were the, these three, uh, Ingram and his two buddies, were very lucky. Uh, most of the two dozen that went north weren't so lucky. They disappeared. Um, but one way or another, uh, Ingram survived the initial part of this long walk. And by the time he got to Texas, um, he and then encountered people that were much friendlier. They lived in towns. They grew crops. Uh, they were Eastern Woodlands uh, American natives who uh, were very successful uh, agriculturalists, and they loved itinerant traders. So these guys show up, and by this time, they're beginning to figure out what other things they could collect along the way that would be more valuable as they went north and then east. Uh, they got into trading as itinerant traders very quickly, I think, because they were quite successful. So what, uh, what we begin to have from Ingram is a view to an entire world of continental trade existing amongst the natives that otherwise archaeologists, we, you, you find something you find um, in Cahokia, you find obsidian from Yellowstone and you realize it didn't walk there. It, and it probably yeah. wasn't just one person that brought it, that somehow it had made its way. Or you find, you know, as pottery is developed in really, really thousands of years ago and making its way up from like what Georgia, I think it is, and making its way in various ways. You can see how the designs are carried over and then they chain. So you know that there's trade going on, but Ingram allows us to see it in full rush, 
I, I would, I, I, it's the only way I can describe it. That, that's right. And, and the reason he's able to see it is this is before the epidemics reach the shores of North America. Smallpox is not yet part of the scene. Uh, all of this, uh, all these wonderful cultures, the Eastern woodlands, were horribly crippled by uh, diseases uh, in the next century uh, and well into the 18th century. Uh, but none of that had happened yet. And the trail system was both ancient and very well developed. It was it was like the interstate highway system. So you you should explain that now because this is I think this is the maybe the hardest part. This is probably the the, the hardest part to believe for people. I, I think for me, I think for others, the idea that someone's walking thirty six hundred miles through North America at the time, it, they just they imagine as sort of being bushwhacking. Uh, they imagine it as the Appalachian, at best, the Appalachian Trail, or really maybe a bad trail on the Blue Ridge. So it's really hard to comprehend what he did. So much of the eastern woodlands was deserted because of the epidemics that all the trail system grew over and it returned to wilderness. So when the first settlers came in, guys like Daniel Boone thought they were trailblazers. Well, they were basically on an old trail system, they just didn't know it. Um, and uh, partly because of all of that, that long episode, a lot of anthropologists believed for a long time that the trail system didn't exist uh, in, in Ingram's time. But it's clear from what he tells us, the trail system was uh, uh, very extensive and very heavily used. DeSoto ran into traders when he, uh, and he was there uh, a few decades before Ingram. Um, and it was, it was a very active, heavily used trail system then as well. So he was going into uh, a ready-made situation for him to hike uh, a long distance on established trails, being able to uh, bargain for provisions as he went along. Um, I was able to find uh, about a dozen waypoints that I'm certain that he passed through. And then that, that enabled me to break his journey up into about 38 legs uh, by connecting those uh, together. So that's how I was able to reconstruct the path. So and we, these trails uh, follow, or we should say modern roads, like, well, I guess Route 11 in the Shenandoah Valley follows a, a trail that the, the first English in the 1730s, they knew there was a longstanding Indian trail uh, yeah. that yeah. existed long after the inhabitants of the Shenandoah had died off or moved away when the Shenandoah was relatively unpopulated. There was still a trail being used by people going up and down that amazing, basically rift valley that goes yeah. from Lake, Lake Champlain all the way to Alabama. That's a very nat And so these trails follow natural geographical highways. Like for example, sensibly enough, sensibly enough, like the fall line, uh, they're going to go above all the places where it's easiest to cross on the East Coast, which turns out to be its route one, not not yes, too surprising. exactly. Uh, and you know, it, it's not it's it's not hard to figure out when you when you think it through because uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail along the ridge line is something that's challenging for modern hikers, and that's why they do it. But sensible people who have goods to sell and want to get there quickly and easily 
will take the least cost way of getting wherever they're going. And so that's how those trails developed. And the highway engineers that came along later have the same sensibilities about where to put roads. You don't go over the top of the mountain if you can avoid it. Right. You're going through the gaps, you're going to the forge, you're going to the falls, which is, of course, where people also will then and now establish a town. So as you follow that, you're going to go from town to town. And these people want... They want traders. They're not hostile to traders. They want to engage in um, exactly. They want to engage in economic activity. And um, the waypoints or the the, the 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 villages they encountered were then, as they still were in my youth, uh, often about fifteen miles apart. Um, fifteen miles is what an average hiker, a through hiker, will do in a day. Um, I grew up on the prairies of southern Minnesota, and all the towns are about 15 miles apart. In between them, there'll be some smaller little settlement uh, where people can stop and get lunch. Uh, but 15 miles is what you can do if you're walking alongside an ox. Uh, I, I, yeah, that's a brilliant. It was a brilliant point. I've noticed this too. I've I, I uh, drive around Virginia or southern New Jersey or the Eastern Shore. I've started noticing, especially where I grew up, where uh, when I was a little boy in the mid 70s, there were still general stores. And right. one, one day I started, I just looked at my odometer and counted the distance between they're now abandoned or torn down or, or houses. But I started counting the distance and realized that every general store was almost invariably two and a half miles apart you know, or, <laughs> or five miles or some, some variation of 2.5. Yeah. Uh, and the, yeah. so you can see there's, there's a, when people were walking to go get something, uh, not milk, but when they were going to walk to get wire or string, that they were regularly spaced out like that. Well, if you if you work it out that way, it turns out that three thousand six hundred and fifty miles is not that far. Um, if uh, you're doing fifteen miles a day, uh, pretty regularly, and if you do a fifteen mile a day trek, and that's what armies were doing at that time. Um, he could have completed the journey that we know he took from Mexico to New Brunswick in about 250 days. Now that would leave him with almost 90 days of rest and recreation along the way. Uh, so this is not an astounding feat. Uh, uh, Harry Smith, who's a friend of mine who works at NBC, uh, did a story about a guy named Holly uh, Harrison who walked from the Tierra del Fuego to Prudhoe Bay, Alaska. Uh, And he did it 15 miles a day uh, or 25 kilometers. And um, uh, he had a heart attack along the way, but he did it. Uh, Thousands of people uh, made this kind of trek in the 19th century. The the Oregon Trail, the California Trail, these were all uh, distances like the one that, uh, um, that Ingram did. So only if you're an armchair historian and you never get outside and try it for yourself uh, do you find it particularly astounding that uh, he was able to go over 3,000 miles in 11 months. Uh, I guess the difference is, is that the Oregon Trail or California Trail, they knew that the Oregon and California were there. Exactly. Uh, I mean, Ingram, but they were following native trails too. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. But, but they did know, as, as he did, they, they thought that there was a destination that made it all worth it. 
Well, Ingram, and of course, Ingram's destination changes uh, because when he gets somewhere around Florida, he finds out the Spanish have extermin- uh, massacred right. the French population at uh, Fort Caroline, I think it is. And, uh, yeah. and, and now he has to head north. So he heads north along, he takes Route 1 all the way up the eastern seaboard. Um, could you just speak briefly about, he sees some big towns, uh, right. which, which um, John Smith, uh, just 40 years, 50 years later, did not see as in his many expeditions around the Chesapeake. So what did he see and why, why was it there? He, um, he got um, into a number of, of uh, fairly sizable towns, but the one that really impressed him the most was a place he called Balma. We have no idea what its name was, but that's what he called it. Uh, on the Southern Susquehanna river in what is now Southern Pennsylvania, he took a little detour uh, apparently, uh, on that, uh, occasion because he ran into these people and was struck by, uh, how different they were from the people that he had been running into prior to that. These were Northern Iroquoians. Um, and we even know the site that he visited. It was a big longhouse village. Have, have, uh, you, dug, have you dug there? Or, or, but, or I have not dug there, but other Pennsylvania archeologists have, uh, it, these sites are well known. Where is it? And, uh, a guy named Barry Kent uh, worked on this particular site early on, and he said, you know, this site was probably founded uh, by at least 1575, maybe earlier. Well, Ingram goes to that very site, as it turns out, to my astonishment, because I had no clue about that connection going into this. Um, and and uh, uh, he got there in the late 60s, 1560s. So, all right, Barry was off by five years. That's not a big deal because he was using archaeological evidence and it was only an approximation. Um, so uh, this is the first confirmation uh, by a visitor that this site was uh, occupied and doing well. And these people lived in enormous longhouses, multifamily longhouses. So, I mean... Could you describe the the site a little bit? How how big? Because he is it. I mean, it sounds like they're like at least a a, a town of two thousand people. Uh, or uh, 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 how big is the site now, based on the archaeology? Uh, the 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 site uh, probably has fewer than two thousand, but you know, a, a large number. Um, and the core of the village would have been a set of longhouses, each of which would contain. Um, over a hundred people. Um, and then the surrounding fields where the women did most of the farming, uh, were a huge area all around it, uh, with little houses that were used in the summertime so that they could, uh, guard the fields against predation by deer and raccoons and, uh, you know, the animals that came in to, uh, uh, to eat. Um, so the whole thing could have easily been a mile across, uh, because the core of the village might, might've been palisaded, uh, is a fairly tight community, but the surrounding fields and the houses that are scattered around out there would have been a much larger area. So when Ingram says that he saw villages that were a mile in extent, you know, he's talking about, uh, you know, settlement along the edge of a river someplace, that extends a mile from one end to the other. And that's not outrageous. Now, of course, when that information got to Walsingham and the others in this uh, 
uh, interrogation, they're thinking of London when they think of something that size and huge buildings uh, made of stone and that sort of thing. But that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about Iroquoian villages. So he continues his walk and um, anything, who does pick him up uh, in, um, well, a couple of things. One is I hadn't realized uh, or I'd forgotten if I ever knew that the Penobscot Bay was so important as Norumbega, Norumbrega, Norumbega in the Norumbega, European, yes. in the, in the European imagination. And that, you know, uh, so that's, we should touch on that. And then, you know, who in the world was just hanging around the Bay of Fundy as if they were there to pick him up at the end of his walk, like there was some sort of support staff. Um, the, uh, the Norumbega myth is, is part of this because it was so current in England at the time. Um, the French had set, uh, explored and settled the, uh, the St. Lawrence decades earlier. Uh, and uh, one of their maps uh, reported that there was a, a village on what is the Penobscot River. Uh, and they, uh, they called it Norumbega or something of that sort. Uh, and there was a uh, a voyage by uh, Verrazano in 1524, where he touched on uh, that part of the main coast, and his brother drew a map and labeled it uh, with the word Oronbega, they left off the initial N. Um, and that became the source of a whole mythology about this magic city on the Penobscot River that persisted in England uh through the rest of that century. It all got forgotten by the 1600s. But at the time, in the late 1500s, it was still a big deal in their imaginations. And so Humphrey Gilbert thought he wanted to go to Norumbega, and he sent his man John Walker to find it. Um, and then they imposed the idea of Norumbega on the discussions with uh, Ingram. Did you see it? And of course, he said, well, yeah, he saw a village on um, uh, the Penobscot, and if you want to call it Norumbega, I suppose you can. Um, but uh, uh, that's how that one got fed into the discussion with Ingram. It's interesting. I mean, it's, a, it's a very interesting study in human psychology, how time and time again during this period, um, you'll, you'll see there's a, something on the map and then people start to festoon it with stories and imaginings. The Northwest passages, of course, will go on for like a hundred years, 200 years with right. people imagining, you know, putting into the, into the blank part of the map, what they want to find there. But it, yeah. it Norumbega is just like, maybe, not the first example, but one of, one of the, has to be one of the best. When Mercator uh, did his world map, he did that section and he put a little castle with a tower uh, right where he thought Norumbega would have been. And we got the location right, but there were no castles there in the 1500s. So he, he fetches up, um, and we should say he's been using uh, dugout canoes to cross the rivers. Um, yes. I would imagine that a lot of people just left them there, um, and people just would leave them there, and then and then any traveler that would come along would, would use it. Um, and he's using birch bark canoes in the, in the north. And he comes to the coast, to the base of the St. John's River in New Brunswick. Is that where he is? At the That's right. He the the trail ended for him in what is now Old Town, Maine, where the Penobscot uh, Nation still lives. There's an island there called Indian Island, and uh, 
Uh, my first teaching job was at the University of Maine, which is a few miles away. So I got to know these people pretty well. And they are birch bark canoeists extraordinaire. And they're the ones that showed the old town canoe company how to build canoes. Um, they uh, were there at the time of Ingram's arrival. And they basically would have signed to him. By this time, Ingram was pretty good at a North American sign language, uh, which everybody used uh, on that trail system to communicate because there were so many different languages being spoken. Um, and they would have signed to him, look, man, you can't go any farther by trail. The trail stops here. If you want to go farther, if you want to get to a place where somebody's going to rescue you, we're going to have to help you. And uh, there was a standard route to get from uh, the Saint, from the Penobscot River to the St. John River through interior streams or along interior streams. And uh, so he must have had Penobscot help to get to that next leg which he uh, said when he got there uh, was the farther, the northernmost point he ever reached. And it would have been on the upper St. John. And so it was there that they, uh, somebody sketched in the sand, apparently, a picture of a British or a, a, a European ship and said, these guys are down on the coast trading. And of course, that would have meant hiring some guys to paddle them down that river as fast as they could to get to the, uh, the mouth of the St. John's and um, uh, hopefully run into this ship, which they did. Which they did and made their way to France. And then from France must have seemed like a, such a short journey <laughs> just across the channel back to England. It was, it was a really rapid uh, return. I, I've forgotten how many days it was, but they saw the lizard, which is at near land's end, uh, very, very quickly. It was a, a, a short sail across the North Atlantic compared to what uh, was usually the case. So it yeah. was, I think it was less than a month. It was. I, um, I, think I, I recall it was a little over three weeks, if I, if I look yeah. at my notes here. Um, so we're about the end of uh, our time. Um, one thing briefly, back to that room in 1582. Why is Sir Francis Walsingham the chief spymaster? interested in what an illiterate sailor has seen in North America? Well, his job was to uh, inform the queen about how viable the idea of colonization really was and how much she should commit to it and what she could expect to gain from it. That was his job. Mm -hmm. uh, he was very good at extracting information. He used to run agents in France. Uh, he knew what he was doing. Uh, he would have encountered a lot of um, sources like David Ingram. So this wasn't new to him. And so uh, this is, this is. I mean, it's key to realize that the, for the English, this this age of exploration is part of high geopolitics. So Richard Hacklett has this idea, which is not crazy, kind of crazy based on the technology of the time, but he wants to seize the strategic choke points. He wants to seize Tierra del Fuego. He wants to seize, <laughs> he wants to seize Panama. I mean, this is what sort of some of Drake's expeditions really are playing around with this idea yeah. during the Golden Hind that they'll seize Panama and then they'll have Spain right literally around the neck. Um, so these getting this testimony from the sailor is is essential to this entire sort of geopolitical scheme. Absolutely. Of, of for finding a way a tiny England can somehow stand against Spain. Um, 
Yes, exactly. And uh, there were uh, well-heeled gentlemen that were interested in their own uh, agendas. Uh, uh, George Peckham was a Catholic. He uh, he was looking for a way to find um, uh, colonization points uh, on the east coast of America so that Catholics could go there and get away from Protestant persecution in England. Um, you know, Humphrey Gilbert was interested because he wanted bases along the east coast of North America uh, from which to prey on Spanish shipping. Um, uh, Hacklute had was the descendant of John D., who you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, uh, in promoting the idea of a British empire, not an English empire, but a British one. Because they're Welsh. Um, and yeah, with the Welsh connection, that's why. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, there were lots of people involved here, and uh, they had overlapping interests, but they had also interests of their own that diverged from the others. I, because right there you describe, I mean, Gilbert's idea eventually would be taken up by his half-brother, Walter Raleigh, and that's Roanoke, uh, and right. eventually in Virginia. And then, of course, Peckham's idea becomes Maryland. Um, so yes. we, ha we have, in, in many ways, in that room in 1582 is the next 50 years of English colonization attempts in North America. Um, all the schemes that become plans that become sometimes things, actual places. Um, so it's a really extraordinary, it's an extraordinary room at that moment. But David Ingram is really, is it, is it as extraordinary as any of them? So you've spent your, uh, dedicated your life to studying sort of the archaeology of the woodland peoples um, yes. of North America, of Eastern North America. Um, now that you have Ingram, sort of his evidence where you want it, um, what makes him a unique and useful observer for you? I mean, you've spent your life digging stuff out of the soil and trying to figure out if the story goes with it. Now here Ingram comes with a story. Um, so what makes him unique and, and useful to you and meaningful to you? Um, well, um, one of the big surprises that I've mentioned earlier was that, you know, I did a lot of work on um, Northern Iroquoian uh, archaeology and to have this man suddenly surface in my reading uh, as somebody who actually visited an Iroquoian site at the time that uh, uh, preceded the, the horrible epidemics that these people suffered was a very important way of, um, of confirming uh, a lot of things that I thought I knew uh, and uh, giving me some insights that otherwise I, I wouldn't have known. There are things we know from uh, from Ingram that we wouldn't have uh, information on otherwise. And so that's um, a very helpful uh, feature. I was thinking, I was thinking that in, in things changed so much between 1569 and 1609, 1607. It's like getting a very fuzzy Polaroid yeah. of, a, of a vanished period. It's the only one we've got though. It's not great. Yeah. But it's the only it's the only picture we have, and it's it's very um, it it I felt a deep emotion thinking about that, um, yeah. and and thinking realizing how this this civilization far more sophisticated than most people realize today was about to vanish. That's right. Um, 
it the trail system became overgrown. States like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky were empty for a hundred years, um, and uh, so it was it, the slate was erased, uh, and we only know about what went before from archaeology and the occasional ethno-historical um, insights that we can garner. And Ingram's story is one of those. Uh, so he, he is, your Polaroid image is a, is a really good one, I think. I, I, you know, this, th these are little views of a universe that are otherwise invisible to us except through archaeology. And to have him uh, is is a great help, I think, in, at least in my own perception of uh, the archaeology and ethnohistory of uh, this part of America. My guest today has been Dean Snow. He's the author, most recently, of The Extraordinary Journey of David Ingram, an Elizabethan sailor in native North America. Dean Snow, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 